Well, it's a real pleasure to be able to introduce our next presenter. That's uh, Professor Randy Barnett. You have his bio, so I don't want to go through that. It's a remarkable list of achievements. Uh, Randy has made a name for himself in jurisprudence in just one field after another. You're going to hear just one of the areas in which he is an acknowledged uh, legal authority, and uh, that is constitutional law, but he's also quite accomplished in contract law and uh, criminal justice ethics uh, as well. Among his books, I really highly recommend uh, The Structure of Liberty, which is just a magnificent treatment of his approach to classical liberalism uh, systematically. It's really remarkable. Uh, and I should point out that I contributed some of the insights on the functioning of Icelandic law. So I get a, a whole footnote uh, uh, in the book. Uh, so you're in for a real treat, Randy. Well, thank you, Tom. It's uh, wonderful to be back at Rancho Bernardo after many years. The place hasn't changed. Uh, it's still a charming place to be. Um, as if by an invisible hand, um, my lecture picks up exactly where Rob's lecture leaves off, which is the Declaration of Independence. It really was sort of an invisible hand because we didn't coordinate this. I was really quite shocked that he ended at the moment where my lecture begins. Uh, but that is what my lecture is going to be about, uh, why the Declaration of Independence was right. Uh, in which we go over what the Declaration says and then I explain why I think it was right. And actually, uh, my first two lectures are going to be about that. And so um, I just want to give you a heads up that there's a switch in the schedule, not the switch in the time or anything, but the switch in the subject matter. So my lecture tomorrow will actually continue discussing um, one half of one sentence of the Declaration of Independence um, and talk about the consent of the governed. Uh, today I'm going to talk about the to secure these rights part of the declaration, and tomorrow I'll talk about the consent of the governed part. Um, and so that is actually billed as the Thursday lecture, but I will be giving it on Wednesday. Uh, and on Thursday I'll give the lecture billed for Wednesday, which is the modesty of radical libertarianism. All right, so our country, uh, indeed our people, has a discrete starting point. You heard this uh, eloquently from Rob. A singular moment in time when it was founded and when its founding was expressly defended. And that moment was July 4th, 1776, when the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence. The Congress had voted for independence on July 2nd, which John Adams thought was going to be thought of as Independence Day, but it is the day that the Declaration was adopted, July 4th, that has come to be known as Independence Day. Now, the Declaration of Independence used to be read out loud at public gatherings on every 4th of July. Today, while all Americans have heard of it, uh, I think even those that get, in, innovated, uh, get, get interviewed by Jay Leno have at least heard of the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, all too few have read more than a, its second sentence. And yet the Declaration shows um, the natural rights foundation of the American Revolution and provides important information about what the founders believed makes a constitution or government legitimate. It also raises the question of how these fundamental rights to which it refers are reconciled with the idea of the consent of the governed, another idea for which the Declaration is famous, and that problem, how you reconcile those two, is what I'm going to handle tomorrow morning. Now, later, after the founding, the Declaration assumed increasing importance in the struggle to abolish slavery. It became a linchpin 
of the moral and constitutional arguments of the 19th century abolitionists. It was much relied upon by Abraham Lincoln. It had to be explained away by the Supreme Court in the infamous Dred Scott case. And eventually, uh, it was repudiated by some defenders of slavery in the South because of the Declaration's inconsistency with that institution. Now, when reading the Declaration, it is worth keeping in mind two very important facts. The Declaration constituted high treason against the Crown. Every person who signed it would be executed as traitors should they be caught by the British. Second, the Declaration was considered to be a legal document by which the revolutionaries justified their actions and explained why they were not truly traitors. They had to say why. It represented, as it were, a literal indictment of the Crown and Parliament in the very same way that criminals are now publicly indicted for their alleged crimes by grand juries representing the people. But to justify a revolution, it was not thought to be enough that officials of the government of England, the Parliament, or even the sovereign himself had violated the rights of the people. That was not enough. No government is perfect. All governments violate rights. That was well known. So the Americans had to allege more than a mere violation of rights. They had to allege nothing short of a criminal conspiracy to violate their rights systematically. Hence, the famous reference in the Declaration to a long train of abuses and usurpations and the list that follows. In this little graphic that we have here, this is the part of the preface of the Declaration that I'm going to read to you and I'm going to dissect line by line. And what follows here is the long train of abuses. This is the indictment. This is the bill of indictment. All the things that he has done, the, the king has done, that justifies this move. Now, in some cases, these specific complaints account for provisions uh, in, that were eventually included in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In other cases, they didn't. And some of them are hard to understand today, actually. But before that list of particular grievances came those two paragraphs I just showed you, succinctly describing the political theory on which the new polity was founded. To appreciate all that is packed into these two paragraphs, it is useful to break down the Declaration into some of its key claims, which is why I asked you all, or why Tom asked you all to bring your Cato Constitutions with you today, um, open them up. Uh, they all come with a copy of the Declaration in front of it. I see some of you did not follow instructions or did not hear the instructions. Uh, not a big surprise. Uh, but why don't you just open up so you can follow along, because otherwise you're going to just have to follow me, uh, and uh, this way you can read along with me. The first sentence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God, I'm going to come back to that distinction later, entitle them. Uh, the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, this first sentence is often forgotten. It asserts that Americans as a whole, and not as members of their respective colonies, are a distinct people. That's what it says. To dissolve the political bands revokes the social compact that existed between the Americans and the rest of the people of the British Commonwealth. I mean, every word in this declaration, every word in these two paragraphs makes a difference. It therefore reinstates, having dissolved the bands, 
it reinstates the state of nature between Americans and the government of Great Britain. Tom has copies of the Cato Constitution. What I love about the Cato Constitution is it gratuitously inserts the word liberty throughout the Constitution, um, where it actually wasn't originally there. That's why it's called the Cato Constitution, because it, <laughs> the word liberty just pops up in the middle of the text at random places. No, it doesn't. It's the actual literal words of the Constitution. All right. So. Um, so what that what the dissolve the bans refers to is that it eliminates the social, it, it, it revokes the social compact between the people of the, of the United States and the people of the British Commonwealth and reinstates the state of nature between Americans and the government of Great Britain. Um, as one speaker said after the declaration was enacted, uh, was passed, adopted, as one speaker said, sirs, we are now in the state of nature. So the state of nature was not just some primordial uh, jungle, past, that never existed, the state of nature vis-a-vis -vis Great Britain was resumed, and so it happened. It came back. Because, and the, what, all that meant was there was no common authority over the two anymore, they asserted. No common authority means you're in a state of nature relative to the person who you don't have, a, there's no common authority over the both of you. Uh, and then, in the state of nature, the laws of nature, as the Declaration mentions, are the standard uh, by which this dissolution uh, and whatever government is to follow are to be judged. These laws of nature are based on the regularities found in nature and discoverable by reason. As Reverend Eliza Goodridge later explained in an election sermon delivered on the eve of the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, he was a local uh, uh, reverend in uh, Connecticut. He, uh, election sermons were often given by, re by local uh, ministers uh, to people who were then going to go out and, uh, after an election and do their job as public officials. It was kind of their charge. It was their inspiration. It was giving them moral guidance as to how they were supposed to do their job. This was an election sermon that he gave uh, right before the Philadelphia Convention starts, and I'm going to be relying heavily on a paragraph of that sermon. Uh, what, what, what Reverend Goodridge says is, quote, the principles of society are the laws which Almighty God has established in the moral world and are made necessary to be observed by mankind in order to promote their true happiness in their transactions and intercourse. Actually, let me read that sentence again because I kind of broke it up in a way that just kind of destroys its meaning. The principles of society are the laws which Almighty God has established in the moral world and made necessary to be observed by mankind in order to promote their true happiness in their transactions and intercourse, unquote. These laws, he said, quote, may be considered as principles in respect of their fixedness and operation, unquote. And by knowing them, quote, we discover the rules of conduct which direct mankind to the highest perfection and supreme happiness of their nature. They are as fixed and unchangeable as the laws which operate in the natural world. Human art, in order to produce certain effects, must conform to the principles and laws which the Almighty Creator has established in the natural world." Unquote. These natural laws govern every human endeavor, not just politics. They undergird what we may call, what I may call, what, what we shall call, and what I call the normative disciplines, by which I mean those bodies of knowledge that guide human conduct. Now, that's not all of knowledge. We have the descriptive disciplines. The descriptive disciplines are like physics or biology. They don't attempt to guide human conduct. They're just attempting to describe things and explain things. They're not guiding us. But there is a whole series of what we call normative disciplines. These are disciplines of knowledge that do guide human conduct. They tell us how we ought to act. Um, bodies of knowledge that tell us how we ought to act if we wish to achieve our goals. Now, Goodrich 
himself offered examples in, in the quote, I haven't, I haven't read this to you yet, from agriculture, engineering, and architecture. Here's what he says. He, knew, he who neglects the cultivation of his field and the proper time of sowing may not expect a harvest. He who would assist mankind in raising weights and overcoming obstacles depends on certain rules derived from the knowledge of mechanical principles applied to the construction of machines in order to give the most useful effect to the smallest force. And every builder should well understand the best position of firmness and strength when he is about to erect an edifice. To ignore these principles is nothing short of denying reality, like jumping off a roof and imagining one can fly. As Goodrich puts it, quote, for he who attempts these things on other principles than those of nature attempts to make a new world, and his aim will prove absurd and his labor lost, unquote. By make a new world, Goodrich meant deny the nature of the world in which we live. He concludes, no more can mankind be conducted to happiness or civil societies united and enjoy peace and prosperity without observing the moral principles and connections which the almighty creator has established for the government of the moral world. Okay, now let's move on to the second sentence of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This, of course, is the most famous line of the Declaration, the line that is probably the only line that many people know. On the one hand, this line will become a great embarrassment to people who permitted slavery. On the other hand, making public claims like this has consequences. That's why people make them publicly, to be held account, to be held to account. This promise will provide the heart of the abolitionist case in the 19th century, which is why defenders of slavery came ultimately to reject the Declaration. It even forms the basis of Martin Luther King's metaphor of the civil rights movement as a promissory note that a later generation had come to collect. You could look at it that way. So what are unalienable or more commonly referred to as inalienable rights? Inalienable rights are those you cannot give up, even if you want to, and consent to do so. Unlike other rights, alienable rights, that you can agree to transfer or to waive. Now, why the claim that these rights were inalienable? The founders wanted to counter England's claim that by accepting, the by accepting colonial government, governance as long as it had, the colonists had waived or alienated their rights. The, the, the founders claimed that with inalienable rights, you always retain the ability to take back any right that has been given up or that appears to be given up. That's why it mattered that they were inalienable rights, to counter that, that claim based on consent. Now, a standard trilogy throughout this period was not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but life, liberty, and property. For example, the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress, which was passed in 1774, asserted that, quote, the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America, by the immutable laws of nature, the principles of the English Constitution, and the several charters or compacts, unquote, have the following rights, quote, they are entitled to life, liberty, and property, and they have never ceded to any foreign power whatever the right to dispose of either without their consent, unquote. Or, as John Locke, who you heard a lot about in Rob's lecture, said, 
quote, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Another formulation. Perhaps the most commonly repeated formulation was found in the Virginia Declaration of Rights of May 15, 1776, drafted by George Mason. And here's what it read. Quote, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights. Inherent rights is a synonym for natural rights. Namely, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. That language is replicated throughout several of the original constitutions of the original states um, and um, was originally proposed to be added in the Bill of Rights. It didn't make it into the language, but that's how canonical that formulation was. The enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing happiness and safety. You've got everything in there. Property and happiness are all in there. Okay, next sentence of the Declaration. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Actually, this is the, just the next half of the next sentence. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Another overlooked line, which expressed the central underlying assumption of the Constitution later the assumption of individual natural rights. This statement identifies the ultimate end or purpose of government as securing the natural rights, which the previous sentence had affirmed is the measure against which all government, whether of Great Britain or the United States, will be judged. To some extent, the second half of my lecture is all about this half of this sentence. Continuing on, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Today, there is a tendency to focus entirely on this portion of the sentence to the exclusion of the first part that references the securing of our natural rights. But we should recognize that both parts are there and differ in meaning, and there is also a tension between them. Natural rights are rights that are thought to exist apart from any consent of others. They are thought to be inherent, you heard that raised, inherent in the individual, and indeed they were often referred to as inherent rights. But claims about rights are highly disputed. Even philosophers disagree about their existence and their scope. How practical is it to trump the consent of the governed, as reflected, for example, in legislation enacted by elected representatives, by claims of rights or justice? And is this not especially problematic, given that unelected judges are the ones who must decide whether such rights to do or do not, that such rights uh, do or do not exist and have or have not? been violated. In practice, then, is it not better to emphasize the second part of this sentence and de-emphasize the first? Not really. It turns out that the concept of the consent of the government is equally problematic. It's not that the first isn't problematic, it's that the second is also problematic. First of all, standing alone, the second part of the sentence poses a grave problem. For people can be said to consent to almost anything. For example, no one can justly punch another in the face, but anyone can consent to participate in a boxing match. Rape is a crime. I used to prosecute when I was a prosecutor in Chicago. But people can consent to sexual relations. So one must be very careful before concluding that someone has really consented, for example, to restrictions on their liberty. But this raises a second and very difficult issue of what exactly constitutes consent and whether someone has or has not in fact consented. When it comes to governance, well, what is it? What is consent? Is it the express consent of each and every citizen, which of course we know is impractical to obtain? 
or is it their uh, or is it their consent um, imply is their consent implied by their failure to leave the country, which would suggest that anyone who has not left has consented to anything that goes on after they stay? Uh, does the consent of the majority override that of the minority? In what sense has the individual consented to be restricted by a law uh, that a mere handful of other citizens called legislators uh, have enacted, even if they supposedly represent a majority of the citizens but not the minority and not you? These questions make clear that the consent of the governed raises at least as many issues as it solves. In practice, people tend to favor one of these concepts over the other which leads them to stress one part of this sentence in the Declaration over the other. A lot of political theory uh, and common political debates break down over which side of the sentence you place the most importance on and which you place subordinate importance on or maybe ignore altogether. The fact that rights can be uncertain and disputed leads some to emphasize the consent part of this sentence and the legitimacy of popularly elected legislation, popularly enacted legislation. But the fact that there is never unanimous consent to any particular law, or even the government itself, leads others to emphasize the rights part of this sentence and the legitimacy of judges protecting the fundamental or human rights of individuals and minorities. Now, if we take both parts of this sentence seriously, however, I believe they can be reconciled uh, by distinguishing between, first, the ultimate end or purpose of any legitimate government to secure these rights, and second, how any particular government gains jurisdiction to rule, consent of the governed. So while the protection of natural rights or justice is the ultimate end of governance, particular governments only gain jurisdiction to achieve this end by the consent of those who are governed. But that doesn't address all the uncertainties of both rights and consents. In my lecture tomorrow, I'm going to explain how the tension between natural rights and the consent of the governed, as well as the uncertainties of each, were initially addressed by a concept I'll refer to tomorrow as presumed consent. The people as a whole cannot be presumed to have consented to surrender any of their natural rights, in short. But in the balance of this lecture, I will defend the Declaration's claim that the ultimate purpose of government is to secure the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, one more passage, one last passage from the Declaration before we move to that subject. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This passage restates the end of government, human safety and happiness, and identifies the form of government, to, that's how it refers to the form of government, as simply a means to that end. Therefore, the people have a right to alter and abolish any form of government when it is destructive of these ends, as the Americans declared the British government to be in the list that then followed. So the political theory announced in the Declaration of Independence can be summed up in the following sentence, the following proposition, and it is this. First comes rights, then comes government. First comes rights, then comes government. According to this view, first, the rights of individuals do not originate with any government, but pre-exist its foundation. Second, the protection of these rights is the first duty of any government. Third, even after government is formed, 
These rights provide a standard by which its performance is to be measured. And in extreme cases, its systematic failure to protect rights or its systematic violation of rights can justify its alteration or abolition. So the rights, these natural rights don't go away when government is formed. The Declaration is testimony to that. They form the basis of the critique of an existing up and running government. Fourth, at least some of these rights are so fundamental that they are inalienable, meaning they are so intimately connected with one's nature as a human being that they cannot be transferred to another even if you consent to it. Okay, this is powerful stuff. This is powerful stuff, all in two paragraphs. At the founding, these ideas were considered so obviously true as to be self-evident. That's how true they were. They were self-evidently true. However, today, the idea of natural rights is obscure and controversial. Oftentimes, when the idea comes up, it is deemed to be archaic. Moreover, the discussion by, of, um, um, the discussion uh, by many of natural rights, when many discuss natural rights, um, they focus on the de Declaration's claim that such rights are endowed by their creator to yield a conclusion that natural rights must be religiously based rather than secular, because there's all this reference to the creator. And you've, you've even heard Goodrich talking a lot about the creator. So it is useful to, att to attempt to understand natural rights the way the founding generation wrote, who wrote and ratified the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, understood them. As, as the explanation of Goodrich that I read to you, um, I think, shows, these laws of nature that he was talking about are based on the regularities of nature, and then the almighty creator is identified as the source of this order, the source of these regularities because of the creation. And that's why I think it's useful that the Declaration distinguishes between the laws of nature and of nature's God. The laws of nature are the regularities of nature, and nature's God, God is who made that nature. The God is who created that nature. That's the relationship of the two concepts. So natural law operates to guide human conduct, even if the natural order was not made by God, a God, any God. Even if there is no deity, crops will fail and buildings will fall if these laws are not followed. So too will societies fail to provide the conditions under which human beings can pursue happiness while living in proximity to each other, if their natural rights are not respected and protected. As the renowned Dutch natural rights theorist Hugo Grotius famously and bravely affirmed, quote, what we have been saying about the existence of natural law of justice would have a degree of validity even if we were to concede what cannot be conceded without the utmost wickedness, that there is no God or that the affairs of men are of no concern to him. It was brave because you, shouldn't, you couldn't even suggest in print the negative that there is no God by planting the idea that there might not be a God. You, you, you were running the risk of being prosecuted for that. But he said it because he wanted to distinguish between what he called the natural law of justice and the existence of God. It would be, exist even independently of that. But were the founding generation right to, to believe in natural rights? And how do we identify them? In what sense can we say that they precede government? Now, I've presented a fuller defense of natural rights in my book, The Structure of Liberty, Justice and the Rule of Law, which Tom 
uh, has just mentioned, uh, I'm just, uh, has mentioned to you already. Uh, I'm told some copies are on their way uh, by, uh, from Amazon, 10 copies I will sign. Uh, they'll come here probably by tomorrow night. I'll be here on Thursday. I'll be able to sign them if you'd like to buy them. Uh, otherwise, it's freely available on Amazon, a new uh, and lower-priced paperback edition, as a matter of fact, Re newly revised and newly published um, uh, with a new afterword responding to critics. At any rate, uh, I spent a long time talking about the entire subject of the book is explaining which rights are natural and why they're natural. So I'm not going to be able to get into all that here. I'm just going to be able to summarize a bit of it. Uh, and in particular, I want to talk about what it means to say a right is a natural right. Um, and not talk about why particular rights like property and contract are natural rights. That's really what the subject of several lectures would be if I decided to do that. Um, and I'm also going to uh, distinguish at the end of my talk between natural law on the one hand and natural rights on the other hand. But let me first spend the bulk of my talk talking about natural law, and then I'm going to turn my attention to natural rights. I, print, I contend these are not quite the same things. They're related, but they're not the same. Now, the idea of natural law is mysterious to us today. We are accustomed to thinking of law as the command of the legislature, or perhaps the command of a government official or judge that is then enforced by government. That's what we think a law is. A natural law, whatever it might be, that was not incorporated into a command enforceable by a government hardly seems the paper that it isn't written on. How can there be a law in any meaningful sense in the absence of government recognition and enforcement? But when we think of the disciplines, the normative disciplines of engineering or architecture, the idea of natural law is not so mysterious after all. For example, engineers reason that given force, given the force that gravity exerts on a building, if we want a building that will enable persons to live or work inside it, then we need to provide a proper foundation, walls, and roof of a certain strength. The principles of engineering, though formulated by human beings, are not a product of their will. These principles must come to grips with the nature of human beings and the world in which humans live, and they operate whether or not they are recognized or enforced by any government. And though they are never perfectly precise and always subject to incremental improvements, and sometimes even breakthroughs, they are far from arbitrary, and we violate these laws at our peril. Unlike the physical sciences, which are purely descriptive, as I said, the disciplines of engineering and agriculture are normative in that they instruct us on how we ought to act, how human beings ought to act, given the nature of human beings and the world in which they live and the purposes at hand. Nor need one be an engineer or an architect to formulate similar natural, laws, uh, normal, similar natural law normative principles. We all do it. For example, the existence of gravity and the way our bodies are constructed uh, leads to the following natural law injunction. Given that gravity will cause us to fall rapidly and that our bodies will not withstand the fall, if we want to live and be happy, we, should, we had better not jump out of a tall building. It doesn't have to be written down. It doesn't have to be passed by government. That's just a law. That's just a law that we can figure out using reason. Now, could the principles of society to which Goodrich referred be natural laws of this type? If we want persons to be able to pursue happiness while living in society with others, then they had best adopt and respect certain social structure, uh, a social structure that reflects these basic principles. Now, it's true 
that any given natural law principles may be more difficult to discern and consequently more controversial than the principles of engineering or architecture, or actually perhaps not. It may actually be more obvious to every person than architecture and engineering, which are highly specialized. Because this is what human beings, because human, uh, this may be true of society though, it might be more hard to do because human beings are so amazingly complex. And unlike the materials from which buildings are constructed, they're self-directed in pursuit of their happiness, so they're kind of hard to sort of uh, herd into one place. But the mere existence of controversy does not render such principles non-existent, nor does the fact that we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch them. After all, we cannot see, hear, taste, or touch the principles of engineering or architecture either. Both sets of principles or laws are humanly constructed concepts used to explain and predict the world in which we live. The idea that the world, including worldly governments, is governed by laws or principles that dictate how society ought to be structured in the very same way that such natural laws dictate how buildings ought to be built or how crops ought to be planted was well accepted by Americans at the founding of the US. Indeed, the assumption that first comes rights and then comes government was so universal that it was considered to be self-evidently true, as the Declaration says. As Justice Samuel Chase famously wrote in the 1780 case of Calder versus Bull, a case I'm also going to mention tomorrow, quote, there are certain vital principles in our free, republic, in our free republican governments which will determine and overrule an apparent and flagrant abuse of legislative power. An act of the legislature, for I cannot call it a law, contrary to the great first principles of the social compact, cannot be considered a rightful exercise of legislative authority. That was Justice Chase in the Supreme Court, unquote. Now, when one mentions natural law, some people ask, maybe some people in this room, and certainly people you know, well, where are these natural laws? Are they out there somewhere? Show them to me. Let me see them. Yet we don't demand that humanly developed principles of engineering or architecture be found somewhere in the dirt or brick or steel you'd sort of have to be slow to say, show me the principles of, here's a, here's a steel girder, show me in that girder where there are principles of engineering. Like, wouldn't even think to ask a question like that. Nevertheless, everyone accepts that these principles must be respected if bridges are to stand and crops to grow. The principles of society spoken of by Goodrich are of the same status, that's my point. They must be respected if people are to pursue happiness while living in society with another. This natural law account of the principles of society assumes, of course, that happiness, peace, and prosperity are appropriate ends. That's if you want to, you know, if you want a society in which people can pursue happiness and, and, and peace and prosperity, then you had better, well, it assumes if you want that thing. And yet, once again, the normative principles of agriculture and engineering and architecture are also based on the assumption that human existence and happiness are worthwhile. If you want to build a building and bridge that will collapse, then feel free to ignore these natural laws. Let me now introduce one final distinction, the distinction between natural law ethics and natural rights. As I've sketched it here, natural law describes a method of reading, reasoning of the following type. Given that the nature of human beings and the world in which they live is X, if we want to achieve Y, then we ought to do Z. In fact, you've all got little pieces of paper in front of you. I want you to do something for me. I'm going to take the little pen and paper that Cato has so graciously provided you and just write down, given, if, then. 
And under given, write x. And under if, write y. And under then, write z. You've all made your own hard copy PowerPoint. You'd be happy to know. This is just, you just did it. You were in power. You've just made your own PowerPoint. You don't have to look up on some screen and go into a hypnotic trance. You just made this for yourself. Given if then. I just want you to take that away. That is what I'm contending, natural law and natural. That is what I'm calling natural law reasoning. Natural law reasoning is given if then reasoning. Given the nature of human beings and the world in which we live, if we want to achieve y, I'm sorry, given the nature of human beings and the world in which we live is x, if we want to achieve y, then we ought to do z. It's very simple. The nature of any particular natural law analysis fills in the if. When the subject is agriculture, the if is, if we want to raise crops so that human beings may eat. When the subject is engineering, the if might be, if we want to build a bridge so that human beings may cross a river. That's what goes in. So you fill in different subjects in the if, and because of the different subjects in the if, given the nature of, of x, what goes into z is going to change. By the same token, the study of ethics can be conceived as an inquiry into the question of, given the nature of human beings and the world in which we live, if, we, if a person wants to live a good life, if a person wants to live a good life, then he ought to do z. And that's basically what Aristotle would say, live virtuously and avoid vicious behavior. Uh, uh, you know, do, practice the virtues, avoid the vices. Now, whether we attempt to feed ourselves, build bridges, or live a good life is a matter of choice. Having made this choice, how we go about making our attempts, and whether they succeed or fail, will be constrained by natural law. Thus, applying a natural, natural law method of reasoning to the ethical question of how people ought to live their lives would begin with an inquiry into the nature of a good life, resting this judgment at least in part on human nature. Then, given the conception of human life, uh, of the good life, a natural law ethics would potentially address nearly every choice a person confronts because it's about how should I live. The subject of natural law ethics is how should I live my life. So it would include, should I go to school? Which one? What should I study? Should I use drugs? With whom should I have sex? Should I give up a week to attend Cato University? Giving up the having sex part? Um, <laughs> each, each one of these questions can potentially be addressed by the natural law method of given if-then reasoning. But the subject of a natural rights analysis is different. This is my point. The subject of a natural rights analysis is different, or perhaps it's more accurate to say that, a natural, rights, that natural rights are the conclusion of a natural law analysis of a different problem. The problem addressed by natural law ethics is how do we live our life? Rather than asking how do we live our life, you can ask a different question. And the different question is this. How should society be structured? so that individuals can pursue happiness while living in close proximity to each other? How can society be structured so that individuals can pursue happiness while living in close proximity to others? That's just a different question than the question of how do we live our lives. It's a different question. And while a natural law analysis can be um, 
applied to a variety of questions. I've already given you a whole bunch, raising crops. Medicine is another, by the way, natural law discipline. You want to keep people healthy. If you want people to be healthy, if you want to make a sick person well, et cetera, then you better do these things. That's another natural law discipline, normative discipline. It, um, the question, it, so, it can be, so natural law analysis can be applied to lots of different questions, but, if to the, uh, but the question of how society ought to be structured is a separate and distinct inquiry. That's the point. The question is different, so the analysis is different. Given the various problems that arise when human humans live and act in society with others, the answer to this question was, which was universally accepted at the time of the founding when the Declaration was written, was that each person needs a space over which, or jurisdiction, you might say, over which he or she has sole jurisdiction or liberty. That's what you need to have. Liberty to act within, which, within this space that no one el within which no one else may rightfully interfere. The concepts defining this liberty or moral space came to be known as natural rights. And there's all kinds of specific ones. The rest of my book is explaining why, what the various contours of these rights are and why it's necessary that they be protected in order for people to pursue happiness. And I do that by outlining three grave social problems every society must confront, problems of knowledge, problems of interest, and problems of power. And if you understand these problems, you'll see why these basic rights must be adhered to in order to handle those problems. That's my thesis, which I'm not going into anymore now. But I'll talk a little bit more tomorrow about the scope, the, 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 uh, the shape or contours of these rights, a little bit in the context of talking about sovereignty. All right. Thus it is a mistake and an all too common one to equate natural law with natural rights. Law professors do it all the time. People do it all the time. I, I can't say philosophers do it all the time. I really don't know if that's true. It's just extremely common for people to use natural law and natural rights interchangeably as though they're synonymous. They are not synonymous. Natural law is a broader term, and an older term, by the way, referring to the given if-then method of evaluating choices based on a given of human nature and the nature of the world. A natural approach to ethics uses a given if-then analysis to evaluate the propriety of any human action. In contrast, a natural rights analysis seeks to determine the appropriate social structure within which people ought to be free to do as they please. It uses a natural law given F-then methodology to identify the liberty or space within which persons ought to be free to make their own choices. Whereas a natural law ethics provides guidance for action, natural rights define a moral space or liberty as opposed to license in which we may be free, may free to act independent of interference of other people. In short, here's the, rela the shorthand relationship of the two concepts. Natural law ethics instructs us on how to exercise the liberty that is defined and protected by natural rights. Natural law ethics instructs us on how to exercise the liberty that is defined and protected by natural rights. Therefore, it's just false to claim, as people say about libertarians all the time, that they're libertine and they should say, say you can do whatever you want. No, libertarianism is about the social structure. It is not about how rights should be, how your liberty should be exercised that's being protected by natural rights. That's the subject of natural law ethics about which libertarians can disagree with each other, uh, but that's just a separate inquiry. Libertarians don't deny there's such a thing as ethics. They just deny that that's part of the social structure directly. Whereas natural law ethics provides guidance for our actions, 
natural rights define a moral space or liberty, as opposed to license in which we may be free to act without, uh, free of the interference of others. Although principles of natural ethics can be used to guide individual conduct, they should not necessarily, and I would say they should not, be coercively enforced by human law if doing so would violate the moral space or liberty defined by natural rights. In other words, you, cannot, you should not be able to use natural law ethics to undercut natural rights to say, well, you know, you're, you're going to violate your natural rights, you're going to restrict natural rights because of natural law ethics, because the natural rights is what allows people to be ethical. Uh, and if you do away with that, at least hypothetically, that's what we're claiming, if you do away with that, then you make the possibility of being ethical um, uh, un unworkable. Okay. But now, what about the second half of this famous sentence? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. What about that part? I've only given you basically a whole lecture about one half of one sentence. If consent of the governed means the consent of a majority of we the people, then the consent of the governed can be used to violate the unalienable rights for which governments are instituted among men, right? The situation is still worse if a consent of a majority of a small body of men and women calling, called legislators or representatives is taken to be the same thing as the consent of the people themselves. Then what they say can violate the, the, the rights retained by the people, the, secure, the, rights that, the natural rights of the people, because you've consented to it. You can't complain if you've consented to it, right? The problem with the prevailing collective conception of popular sovereignty that these questions are based on is that it invites a majoritarian reading of the consent of the governed to which the Declaration refers. But then you might say, well, how else is the will of we the people to be identified? And that's the question I'm going to deal with tomorrow. All right. So now I'm happy to take uh, questions, comments to elaborate on what I've said. Thank you. The first sip of the nectar, the diet nectar of the gods, Diet Mountain Dew. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll be very brief. Uh, that was a fabulous presentation. I loved your preciseness and exactness and uh, really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, can, can I interrupt for a second? Uh, you're so exact and precise. Uh, you know, I'd just like to suggest okay, maybe ahead, a little ahead. change of your phraseology, I okay. think, among other things, you said that, uh, you know, it's taken that you'll never survive the fall from a tall building that I've always heard. It's a sudden stop at the bottom. Yes, of yes, that's right. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the old joke about the person who jumped off of a tall building and as he was falling and halfway down, somebody shouted out to him, how you doing? And he said, so far, so good. Same, same principle. Yes, sir. The Declaration says we hold these truths to be self-evident. Um, and you mentioned that just about everybody did in those days. Um, so for those of us today who don't find them self-evident, have we declined from a golden age? Or what, what has, has happened? I mean, I, I mean to read your book, and I'm hoping it will all be made clear there, but I'm just wondering what's the difference? Well, I certainly in my book don't talk about our decline. So that, that's not made clear, I promise you. Uh, uh, so uh, what's happened? I tend to resist the golden age uh, hypothesis that there was some wonderful time in the past, and we today live in troubled times. 
I, uh, you hear this all the time, all the time. We live in troubled times today. I, I, I say, okay, fine. You identify for me the good times, all right? I want to hear what the good time was. Okay, Revolutionary War, uh, lots of people killed, maimed, uh, tortured. Then there's the burning of the White House by the British in the War of 1812. Then you have the unbelievable conflict over slavery, the ugly, bitter conflict over slavery. Slavery itself is existing during all this period. Then you have a civil war, kills 600,000 Americans dead as a result of this. We just move forward. Um, we can move forward into the 20th century. We have the Great War, the end all wars, uh, millions of people dead. We have a Great Depression. We have a World War II. Then we have the rise of the Soviet, we have the genocide of the Jewish people, my people, and then we have the rise of the Soviet Union and Red China with the genocide of mi millions of other people. Um, uh, and, and it brings us up, you know, I, I, you know, then we have Jimmy Carter and disco. I mean, it didn't get much worse than that. <laughs> Talk about a golden age. There must have been about 15 minutes in which we had a golden age. So I, 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 um, I, do, I don't really uh, buy that. On the other hand, look, I don't think it's an accident of, uh, that we got this actually great constitution out of this period and that people have liked it enough to stick with it for a long time. Now, it's true that my other, the name of my other book is Restoring the Lost Constitution because there's whole passages of the constitution that are ignored, um, uh, which is reason why we're in the fix we're in. Um, that's a whole long story in itself. Uh, but we got this because the people that were around then were extremely well-educated. Um, the, they were state-of-the-art um, uh, of their time. And the things that they were well-educated about, about human nature, those haven't changed. The very, the, sort of the basic gut things about human nature, lots of things, our understanding of lots of things have changed. But not our understanding of that, or they haven't gotten any better because you know people, you know, in Aristotle's time could speculate about what human nature was right and be right about it, and be and have better insight than other people did. And our founders were extremely well uh, uh, educated in this, um, and that's the reason why these principles were accepted. It was the core of the Enlightenment. It, it's it's called the Enlightenment for a reason. You could just see, like when the when the Enlightenment started, then there was like a big sign that went up. You're in the Enlightenment now. Uh, used to be in the Dark Ages. That was called the Dark Ages, right? No, no. The dark, actually, the Dark Ages weren't so terribly dark. But the, um, so it's called the Enlightenment because people actually caught on to this stuff. We've had a lot of problems since. Brian Doherty talked about that. He talked about what's happened. And mainly, I would say it's this. With the rise of science, um, uh, people thought they could do better. They just thought there's, there's always been problems. There always will be problems. There's problems with liberty. There's pro we don't solve all problems. We'll never solve all problems. There's always been problems. And some fancy pants intellectuals and others and some rabble-risers in the streets thought we could do better. We can do better. Yes, we can. We can do better than this. A fundamental transformation, if you will, of what we currently thought. They accepted the ends of the Enlightenment, but they thought the means were a little retrograde. They called them horse and buggy. We needed means that were appropriate for the diesel age. Of course, that's a little dated now, but that's what they were saying. So um, that's what happened. People got a little hubristic and thought we can do better. And in the course, they sort of dug a hole and they buried our previous understanding of these natural rights, which they all dismissed as retrograde, old-fashioned, uh, reactionary principles uh, in, the, in, in the service of this new, great, better world they're going to create. And it got lost. I think that's the best I can come to, to a narrative that would sort of explain it while giving credit to people, for, to people's good motives, even though I don't always think it's appropriate to give them credit for good motives. Yes, sir. 
Thank you for the clarity and depth. I've read your book, and your ability to go into depth is staggering. Um, how do you answer our, our adversaries who say that what we call human nature and natural rights are merely a social cultural construct and completely malleable? Right. Um, what's an that's an empirical claim they're making. So it's true or false. Uh, one thing I will say, what I do say is sort of my first pass at an answer to that is the principles I'm talking about, and this is the core, they sort of trade off of this truth as well. The principles are socially constructed. They are socially constructed. You don't find natural law principles in the dirt. They're not out there. They are of human construction. It's kind of what makes us human is we can develop these things using our brains. But by the same token, I would say, in my, my next move would be to say, the principles of engineering and agriculture and medicine are also socially constructed in the same sense. And we don't say that they can be remade any way we wish. Now, it's true that some come close to saying, for example, biology can be remade in any way we wish as a society. I just think that's empirically false. It could be right. I just think it's false as a matter of empirical truth. But they tend not to think that other sciences, not climate science, for example, because that's science. So that, that's, that's not a matter of opinion. That's not a matter of social construction. That's a matter of empirical fact. So um, we know they, they believe in some empirical facts as being facts and not just social constructions, at least so they say. So at any rate, I would just say that, we, that even though the human beings are, uh, that these principles are of, of human origin, I will freely concede that. They are not arbitrary, and they cannot be anything we wish them to be, which is what another thing about what arbitrary means, because they have to be grounded in the reality on which they are based. We can be mistaken, and we have been mistaken, about these principles and their implications and their extensions, for sure. But they, they're not just anything we wish them to be. That's how I would answer. Yes, sir. Uh, have you heard? The, uh, or reading any of the articles that came out in July about uh, the potential typo in the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. About the period versus yeah. the comma? Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about it? Well, that? I'd have to explain it to everybody. There's a period in there, and they think it should be a, it was a, com should be a comma. Um, and all I'll say is I haven't studied this. I haven't read the whole critique that's based on this. And therefore, they think it changes the meaning so that the powers, the Declaration is endorsing great powers. Frankly. I honestly don't think the sentence reads any differently if it's a comma than if it's a period. In fact, it reads almost better if it's a comma. So I just think this is stupid. That's what I think. Uh, so I would not, I, the reason I don't want to spend any more time on it is I don't want to make you dumber than you were when you came in here. <laughs> and if you spend too much time chasing this little rabbit down the hole, you will be dumber than you were when you came in here. So I think we should move on to the next question. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, hello, Handy. Randy, your presentation was really great. I Thank really you. liked it. Uh, I just had two little questions. Two little questions. Yeah, two itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny <laughs> questions. Itsy-bitsy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> teeny-weeny. The, the first one is, since you, you said that natural law can be rationally discovered, and trying to communicate with Tom's presentation last night, they can be rationally discovered, and so they are, they are these ought to be, so they are normative. So on the other hand, you think that maybe natural rights depend a little more on a thought pro, uh, pro, process of thought that is descriptive instead of normative. And if you think that in law study, we tend to focus too much on the normative side and forget that there are some, some matters that should be 
and tendered with in a descriptive way and not in a normative way. Okay. Um, by the way, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Brazil. You're from Brazil. Thank you. Um, you're not from Hungary. Because uh, I was told by when I used the phrase itsy bitsy in a lecture one year that, that, that uh, uh, I, I used the phrase itsy bitsy teeny weeny that the one Hungarian student came up and said itsy bitsy that's that's Hungarian that's oh I didn't know that I said but I said is there any nationality that wants to claim teeny weeny but uh, <laughs> nobody raised their hand so uh, 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 good question a good question um, the it's the given part that's the empirical part. So there is an empirical part built right into the way of reasoning. It's given the nature of human beings and the world in which we find ourselves. That's the empirical part. That's the part that the previous question said, questioner said, quite rightly, people question is whether there is even a given. They think it's all socially constructed. It could be, they deny the givenness of the given part. But that's the part I think we just have to have a debate about. And I actually think that if you had a debate in front of a neutral third party, you'd win that debate, that there is such a thing as a given. If you were actually forced to debate somebody who believed in social construction, social construction of an entire reality, you'd win that in terms of the neutral third party. Another thing to think about in terms of debating and convincing and all that kind of stuff, I was a prosecutor. Uh, it meant I went to court you know, for four years. I prosecuted misdemeanors, then I prosecuted felonies uh, in front of juries. Um, and so my goal when I was a prosecutor was never to convince the defense attorney that his client was guilty, the defense attorney already knew his client was guilty. <laughs> My goal was not to convince the defense attorney. My goal was to convince the jury. So the idea here is how would you, we always think, of how would you convince these people who are radically opposed to us that they're wrong? The answer is you won't. The answer, what we need to do is come up with answers that are going to persuade people who are open-minded, who are the jury, that our answers are better than those guys' answers. And so that's really what really ought to be at issue here. And we should all sort of, you should all sort of carry that away. Be realistic about what can and cannot be accomplished by argument. Yes? I was a prosecutor also. Yeah, where? <laughs> in Ventura, California. Yeah? My you question of, is... Do you have a lot of crime in Ventura? Oh, like everywhere. Yeah. My question is, what do you think about a living constitution and uh, also what do you think about the US Supreme Court and how they handle natural rights and natural law okay I'll just give you a shorthand um, uh, uh, aphorism to answer that it's actually someone had one the other night I forgot who it was Tom I think had one the other night this is one that Ed, Ed Meese told me once who was former Attorney General former he uh, uh, was a law professor at, UC, at San Diego, as a matter of fact, before he became uh, Attorney General of the United States under Ronald Reagan. He said, uh, um, the only constitution that's a living constitution is one that's followed. And if you don't follow it, it's dead. So it, that's, that's what I think about the living constitution. Tomorrow, I will actually talk about, as part of talking about the consent of the governed, what is the role of a written constitution? and how should a written constitution be interpreted in order to meet, to perform that objective. And so I will answer those, that will be part of the talk tomorrow when I move on to um, the United States Constitution and, uh, and how it does or does not implement uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um, uh, but you had, what was the last thing, how the Supreme Court has? The U.S. Supreme Court handles the differences between natural law 
Well, the Supreme, I mean, that I will say now because I wasn't going to say anything about it tomorrow. The Supreme Court you know, pays no attention to this, and it's really not necessarily their job to do that. If we, if we had the ideal Supreme Court uh, that I would like, which we're far from and you know, we may never get, but if we had the ideal court that I would like, their, goal is, their job is to really uh, to devise implementing rules by which the text of the Constitution is put into action. And, in the course, and, and we call those implementing rules law. And law is not quite the same thing as these natural rights. One of the things I talk about in my book, which is libertarians tend to neglect, I don't think you, sir, but I think other people do. The subtitle of my book, The Structure of Liberty, is Justice and the Rule of Law. And it attempts to explain why we need a rule of law. And the shorthand answer to that is, is because these principles of justice are too abstract to derive specific outcomes uh, outcome specific enough to guide us in every single case and controversy that comes up with. I learned this lesson when I was a first year law student and I went in my torts class and they were coming up with all these, these cases and hypotheticals about different problems and I thought as a good radical libertarian, which I was at this point already, I should be able to come up with a libertarian answer to these questions and the truth of the matter was I couldn't. So I thought, oh my goodness, I, I mean, what, what's the libertarian answer? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I just don't know. And it, it, it was right at that time I met Murray Rothbard. Um, uh, and the first day I met Murray Rothbard in New York, I was going to a, a lecture uh, given by Leonard Liggio and he was in the audience. I ended up in my, my law school colleague who introduced us, ended up in Murray's living room uh, that evening, the very first day I met him. I'd read him, of course, in college, but I'd never met him. Um, and uh, in, during this private meeting with Murray about this, in his living room, I st we, he and I, my, my first year colleague, uh, law school colleague and I, were running all these hypotheticals past Murray, and Murray was saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so um, that's how he used to talk. Um, uh, so um, I, I, this was like a light bulb went on. I said, look, if Mr. Libertarian doesn't know how to answer these questions. Maybe the fault's not with me, that I'm somehow a defective libertarian that I can't. Maybe there's something missing. And it turns out what's missing in libertarian, the libertarian shtick, shall you speak, is a need for a rule of law that's more specific than these abstract principles of, of justice. And one of the reasons why this is necessary um, is because the way we formulate the abstract principles of justice is by abstracting from the particularities of our situation to what we all have in common. We try to we blind ourselves to the particularities of time and space and individual differences to ask what's common amongst us and then derive principles based on that. Well, what happens in the real world is based on those particularities. And so if you try to apply these abstract, what I would say at this point, libertarian principles to specific cases and controversies, you're going to find you quickly run out of guidance. That's why we need a rule of law that are also of human origin and human construction that are more specific and not logically derived from these principles in order to put those principles into effect. And here's the relationship between the rule of law and justice and rights. The rules of law we adopt should not be inconsistent with these rights, but there's no way we can derive them logically from them other than in the most basic things like don't kill somebody. Uh, but we know, like, for example, we say, don't kill somebody, but you, can, you kill somebody in self-defense. So they say, well, what is self-defense? Oh, well, okay. We all agree it's self-defense, but now what's self-defense? Does, you know, do you have to have an, you know, an imminent threat? What is an imminent threat? I mean, immediately, you are thrown off into the level of detail. And that's what we need a rule of law for. So in my, getting back to your question, the Supreme Court's business, the court's business is largely, 99% of the time, their business is not even interpreting the Constitution. And when they do that, they usually do it wrong. But, when but their job is to put together implementing rules by which the, the, what the Constitution says 
can be put into action to hold the other government uh, agencies accountable. And, and so that's why we need a rule of law. Uh, and, not, and, and that's the reason why the Supreme Court probably shouldn't even be messing around with natural law and natural rights, provided that the Constitution they're enforcing is properly respectful of natural law and natural rights, which it is, especially as amended by the 13th and 14th Amendments. Uh, but then the Supreme Court has gutted it uh, in many ways by eliminating the parts that constrain government. Sorry, it was a very long answer. I apologize for that. But it does allow me to talk about the fact that justice is not enough Natural rights is not enough. And libertarians have a tendency to elevate justice above the rule of law. Conservatives, on the other hand, they elevate the rule of law above rights. That's sort of a difference in our basic outlook. But I think you need both. Yes, ma'am. You were up here earlier. Weren't you in the state of nature when I last saw you? Yes. <laughs> Greetings from the state of nature. Yeah, great. Fish is how, is it, how is it over there? It's fabulous. OK. Is there um, a sw yeah, swimming pool? <laughs> Yes, the state of nature is the rancher Bernardo. Um, okay, so in thinking through your um, comparison between architecture and then the uh, like empirical way of finding out how society should be structured, um, we say, okay, so simple enumeration tells us that our, this architectural building or in engineering, this building will fall if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen, and if it falls, that's its failure. It's pretty like you can see that. So, but then when we look and we try to say, okay, so if X, Y, and Z happens, then humans fail, or um, failure results, as a, and like simple enumeration will tell us that, but when we speak about human failure, and then conversely, when we speak about human happiness, there seems to be a lot of pluralism inherent to that debate. I mean, what is the purpose of human life? What is happiness? How do we figure out, you know, the, general questions of ethics. And so I was wondering if you could respond to how apropos a comparison with something like architecture engineering is to something that is so rife with debate. And frankly, I don't know, it would be awesome, but I don't know if I can see an empirical answer to what is lived human flourishing, the big question, right? So. They must have really good schools in the state of nature. <laughs> Texas, yes, yeah. they do. Yeah, because that's an awesome question. Um, all right, well, it's, it's very difficult. One of the things that I say about this uh, is, and I think it was, in the, it was either in my talk or it's in a talk, I made the talk shorter and I cut it out, and that is that all of these things, that I, all the given if-then, you can challenge any step in the given if-then analysis. They're all contestable and they've all been contested. You can challenge what, what you claim is in the given. You can challenge what you're talking about is plurali, uh, pluralism about what's in the if. If you want to pursue happiness, well, what is that? Or the conclusion reached, the then. Every step is contestable. That's why they get contested. And they, we can make mistakes in doing it. So I th first of all, I want to concede the basic truth of that and not claim that we are, can be more certain about any of this uh, than we can be. Um, nevertheless, I still think it's useful to break it down this way, because at least it caught, I mean, even breaking it down this way caused you to focus your question, really, I think, on the if part. So I can, we can, we know what we're debating about. We're not debating about the whole thing, we're debating about that part of it. All right, so there may be, it may be true that we need to know something about the good life in order to figure out what it means to say that people can pursue the good life while living in society with each other. But I don't think it's true that we need to know all that much. We need what philosophers call a very thin view of the good life. 
in order to get to the result uh, that we that that uh, that uh, what jurisdiction people need in order to make their choices. And in particular, I think what we need to know and what we need to recognize is that for it to be the good life, people in a sense have to choose it. This is what my Aristotelian uh, philosopher mentor Henry Veach said, uh, who was an Aristotelian Thomas philosopher who greatly influenced me before I actually even became a libertarian. Um, uh, and that was, um, living the good life is a do-it-yourself affair. It's, if you don't actually do it yourself, you haven't actually done it. Uh, and so that may, you, need, you, you, you can't just be commanded to live the good life. So you might need to make a minimal claim uh, like that in order to cash out what goes into the if. So I don't deny that that's true. But you ultimately ask about what is the, uh, an empirical test. And so I think this is actually at the end of my next lecture, but I'm going to just say it now. If it is, I don't remember if it is. Um, or actually, you know what it is? It's in the end of my third lecture. Um, and that is this. Um, here's an empirical test. Which way do the refugees flow? Which countries are people trying to get out of and which countries are people trying to get into? That's an empirical thing you can observe. Now, I'm gonna, I, when I make this final point on, the, on my third lecture, I'm going to say that um, um, this is all a matter of comparative, a, a comparison because there is no libertarian society that strictly hews to the rights that we're talking about. So it's not like there's this ultimate libertarian great society that exists. We are not that society, it, we, and we might never be that, that society, but what there are are better and worse. Libertarians, by the way, have sort of a hard time when they're doing their foreign policy analysis evaluating better and worse. It's sort of like all bad or, or all good. But, the, but there are better and there are worse. And one of the empirical tests of whether something's better as opposed to worse is what country builds walls to keep people in and what country, in some respects, is building walls to keep people out. Because the, peop the, people that, the country that's keeping people out are the ones that's doing better. So I would say that's a rough and ready empirical test. Um, and, but I'll say one other point. Even though we'll never be a libertarian society, uh, we, we don't have one, and we may never get a perfectly one, I think the world would be great if we, better now than now if we did. By the same token, even the worst societies, if, if my thesis is right, even the worst societies have to be respecting these rights to some extent, or they would cease to exist as societies at all, if I'm right. So that means that, for example, the Soviet Union, when they adopted what was called war communism, which is actually real communism, and they started confiscating everybody's property, including the property of the farmers, they had mass starvation. The society was about to collapse. So they reintroduced property without calling it property, because only by doing that could they survive. So even in the height of the Soviet Union, there were property rights. There were contract rights. There were lawsuits about contracts in the Soviet Union. It just was less free. These rights were less well protected than elsewhere. Um, but they, if, my, if I'm right, as an empirical matter, and these rights are not respected at all, the society will collapse and not exist at all. If it's existing, they must be respected to some degree. One reason why societies look so different from each other, that the law looks so different, is because of the answer I gave to the previous question. Because the laws we come up with to implement these principles will look different. They are conventional laws. They are laws that are accepted by convention. And so the law of contracts in France looks different than the law of contracts in the US, but the end result of it is very similar. So laws will look different, but if they're not serving these basic principles, the society will collapse but there still is better and worse. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for your lecture, uh, Professor Barnett. Uh, self-evident, um, the principles that are self-evident 
were always self-evident to me. They were born, I was born with those principles, I think I was, as of being self-evident. They are self-evident to the immigrants. You sort of led into my question with your comment about immigration, building walls to keep, walls to keep people out or keep people in. Uh, my fear is that as to generation upon generation of newly born American citizens, it's less and less self-evident, and my concern is that somehow principles that ought to be self-evident are being taught out of people, almost in a programming method. Therefore, in the colonies, you weren't starting from minus. You were starting from zero or a net plus. When you spoke about self-evident principles, the colonists said, that's correct. We, we're in the program. Today, there's much less receptivity to it being self-evident because there's a deprogramming process going on, I think. Am I correct? Yeah, I, to some extent, I agree with you, and I think we all know the problem. Um, the left has, over the last 20 or 30 years, marched through all of our major institutions. Uh, they've taken over higher education. They've certainly taken over the law schools. Uh, slightly less than uh, the re undergraduate, uh, but still there, and they took over K through 12. They've taken over the media. They did this concertedly. Uh, the liberals let them in, the, old, the, the new old liberals, the Alan Dershowitzes of the world, my professor Alan Dershowitz, let them in in the name of diversity, and then once the left got in, they shut everybody out, and they shut the liberals up, and the liberals don't say boo. And so they've taken over those institutions, and, that, and, and they did it for a reason, and it's a dangerous thing, and, and one of the reasons why we're in the situation we are is because they accomplished this. And it's going to be very difficult to take them back because they're self-replicating, and they're deliberately self-replicating. But what we've done instead, and the reason why I think the times that we live in are, uh, seem to be so bitterly divided, I don't think it's because um, they're any worse, but it's because of the following. We have managed because of the liberty we still have left, to put together alternative institutions to combat the ones they took over. And they hate us for it. And they hate these institutions for it. I mean, in the media, we have talk radio. In the media, we have Fox News. In the media, uh, we have the internet and the World Wide Web and all the websites that are created to do this. Uh, in the public policy world, we have first and foremost the Cato Institute, we have Heritage, we have EEI, we have the Center for Competitive Politics. We go on and on and on. The list of alternative institutions that we've created. Um, we have judicial, uh, we have legal institutions like the Institute for Justice um, and the Pacific Legal Foundation and a bunch of others that are doing these sorts of things. And, and so we have created an alternative, we've created a counterculture to the ones they've taken over and it's with those tools that we're fighting back. Now they're trying to put us out of business, they're trying to use their, their, their handmaiden of the IRS to deny us funding uh, because they're so threatened by us. But they're threatened by us because we're effective. And the fact that we're effective is the reason why there's reason for hope. It, when I was growing up, and I look, you look, I look like we're probably roughly the same age. When I was growing up, these institutions simply did not exist. We were, I didn't know I was a libertarian because there just wasn't anybody else around who might have said I was a libertarian. Uh, and so um, we just, we were all, in, when, I, when I was at Harvard Law School, before there was a federal society, I thought I was the only guy who thought this way in, in my class. Um, now there's a federal society, you can look across the room and you can see other people who you know feel this way. So we are actually, the reason why things are so bitterly divided now is because there's two sides to the debate now. And that's the thing we have to continue to fight. And the last thing I'll say is, echo something that, that Tom said um, uh, last night, and that is, 
don't be too discouraged because this is a fight that can never end and that will never end. The forces that lead people to crave power over liberty will always be there because they also appeal to elements of our nature. And therefore, we will always, those of us who are on the liberty side of the equation will always be arguing against people who are making fancy arguments on the power side, and this will never end. But it's our job, it's our responsibility to hold up our side. And if you go to your grave having held up your side, then you have done your job of keeping liberty alive for yet another generation. Thanks.